Hello, Chillinoy. Today, I am joined by two reporters from the Chicago Sun-Times. Stephanie, this is uh, your first time on the Chillinoy podcast, so I'm going to let you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience of the Chillinoy podcast. Awesome. Thank you, Cole. Um, I'm Stephanie Zimmerman. I'm a consumer reporter at the Chicago Sun-Times. I've been covering consumer issues for a few decades, actually, at a variety of news sources. I view my beat, my beat really broadly. And when my editor approached me with this what's in your weed idea, I loved it. And I was so happy to be paired with the Sun-Times wonderful cannabis beat reporter, Tom Shuba. Yeah, that's a perfect uh, segue to uh, Tom. Why don't you go ahead and reintroduce yourself uh, to the audience of the Chillinois podcast? You've been on the show before. Yeah. Hi. Uh, what do you call your audience? Do they have like what's a- up, Chillinois? <laughs> Chillinois. Um, it's it's Tom. I'm back talking about weed on the podcast. Um, like Stephanie said, I'm the the cannabis beat reporter for the Sun Times and cover some other topics as well. Um, and I'm just happy to be back here chatting about our investigation into cannabis testing. Yeah, uh, yeah. And let's dive right into that. Well, first of all, folks, if you want to read along while we talk about this, uh, the links to all of the articles will be in the show notes. Uh, so if you want to go to Chicago Sun-Times and, and read these articles that Stephanie and Tom have worked together on, that'll be in the show notes. Um, you know, it's it's tough for me to, to figure out where to begin. So maybe we'll just I want to pitch it to, to you all. Maybe take tell us about the the beginnings of this inve- investigation and how it came to be, and then maybe we can transition into the findings. Does that sound like a pretty natural path? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm I'm happy to take that, Tom, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, we were we were tasked with a really open ended question, which was, "What's in your weed?" You know, uh, cannabis is so popular in Illinois just came online uh, with adult recreational weed in January of 2020. Super popular, very lucrative, kind of expensive. Um, And so we were just tasked with kind of a very open-ended question of what, you know, what, what's in your weed? You know, is there any, is it as clean as it's purported to be? Because people pay high prices, they pay high taxes, and they are um, told that, what the products that they're buying are vetted, tested, highly regulated, et cetera. So we started with that really open-ended question and no you know, preconceived notions. We started assembling a database that eventually grew to, I think over 3,100 entries of test results that the state regulators get. And these are from the cultivators. They're required to send any failed test to the state. So we started with that just to get a handle on like, what weed that never makes it to the shelves of dispensaries, what weed is failing for. Um, And that gave us some kind of clues to potentially mold being a problem. Most of the flower samples that failed at the state level were failing for mold. So that kind of gave us some clues. We talked to a lot of experts. Um, We ended up zeroing in on pre-rolls as uh, one of the products that tends to have trouble. And it's probably, we're told, something to do with the processing of the pre-rolls. They, they tend to get, um, if, if a product's going to get contaminated, uh, pre-rolls are, are it. That's what we right. were told. So we ended up going on a shopping expedition and tested some of the stuff that we bought. 
Well, very cool. Very cool. And so, uh, you know, I'm reading your article. Looks like you commissioned an independent state registered laboratory to sample um, some of the most uh, popular cannabis products, like you said, pre rolled joints. And like you mentioned, some of the most susceptible to uh, the, the mold issues. And as uh, your, uh, I believe his name is, uh, he's a James McRae, you mentioned in uh, your article, he's a cannabis consultant. Um, as he mentioned, you know, this is a pretty common occurrence with, with pre-rolls because of the fact that the, the cannabis is broken up um, and uh, the disturbed plant material basically releases moisture in the process, mixes in naturally occurring mold sp uh, spores that are in the air all around us. So just wanted to give that background for folks that were wondering like, why are pre-rolls, you know, more likely. So, um, so yeah, you, you dropped it off to the independent state registered laboratory. Tell us like from there, how, how you did it. I liked that. Um, just to, I guess, start off the thought, it looks like you just gave them the samples, but you didn't even like include a, a label or anything, just a number, you know? Right. We, we came in and kind of followed their directions. Um, the, the you, I think these are friends of the pod for you uh, at the folk, good folks who <laughs> yeah. did the testing yeah. for us. Um, and so we, we went to Oregon on the Northwest side of Chicago and um, you know, we put on gloves and protective, you know, stuff and just followed their directions on kind of how to transfer um, the samples from uh, the containers we got at the stores, you know, to, to what they needed to do their testing. And yeah, we, we kind of did it like a, a blind sort of system where we just described letters and numbers so that we, we knew what the samples were when we got the results back, but they didn't particularly know, you know, who's, who's, products they were testing sure sure well hey tell us about the uh tell us about the results they were pretty uh they were probably what you expected uh, based off of some of the data that you had uh access to right i think i think the test results were were somewhat surprising just because of the the number of um you know flunking results that we found um so we got 10 samples, nine of them were pre-rolled joints. One of them was like a, a flower sample produced by Cresco. Um, and what we found was eight of the nine um, pre-rolled joints failed, uh, you know, the battery of tests for different things, uh, most, most notably yeast mold and, and other, you know, different forms of bacteria. Um, and yeah, I, I think when we got those results back, we, we were expecting maybe a few fails in the batch, but the, the fact that the vast majority of them, uh, you know, failed some of these things uh, was, was certainly surprising. S Stephanie, did you have any kind of thoughts? Yeah, you know what, I have to say, I agree. I, you know, I figured buying 10 products and, and again, you know, this is not a scientific study. This is a sampling. This is just like Tom and I going like any other consumer. We, we bought them from eight different dispensaries and we didn't walk in and say we were reporters. We just went in to buy weed like anybody would. Right. So we had 10 samples and I figured, you know, like Tom, you know, one or two of them is going to come back with something funny, but to get eight out of the nine pre-rolls flunking, uh, one of these bio, uh, microbiological tests uh, was 
kind of surprising to me. And and those are um, the microbiological testing in Illinois, just for your listeners in case they don't know, they look for um, they look for five different five main things. They're looking for yeast and mold, and then they're looking for different kinds of bacteria. They additionally test for some really nasty bacteria like E. coli and salmonella, and all 10 of the samples were negative for those. So that was good. They also tested for heavy metals and none of the 10 samples had heavy metals. They also tested for, oh my gosh, I think it was uh, close to 50 or over 50 different kinds of pesticides and all 10 samples um, also were fine for pesticides. And they also test for the this uh, substance or compounds called mycotoxins. And that's um, toxic compounds that are produced by um, fungi, I guess. Uh, and they were all negative for that as well. So that was the good news. The bad news was that that eight of the nine pre-rolls failed um, one of these either yeast and mold or one of the different types of bacteria. Um, and four of the pre-rolls failed four tests. So that was kind of, um, <laughs> that was kind of surprising to hear. We also tested for potency. And that was very interesting because the potency was, uh, of these 10 samples, um, the, the, I believe the flower sample was fine on everything. It passed everything with flying colors, but of these pre-rolls, um, the potency fluctuations, we had, I think about a third of them were what the labeled potency said, about a third of them were lower than the labeled potency. So if you thought you were buying something that was going to give you a lot of bang for your buck, um, it, you would have been disappointed because they tested low. Um, and then about a third of them tested higher, weirdly, uh, higher than the labeled potency. So we found all kinds of stuff and it was really fascinating. That is that is fascinating. Um, I, th I thought one of the, the most interesting things that you pointed out uh, that I think is important for consumers to know is that, you know, Illinois has some pretty strict testing as compared to other states. Um, you pointed out that the uh, threshold, if you will, um, for microbiological contaminants such as mold, yeast, and various bacteria are measured in colony forming units per gram or CFUG. Uh, so for Illinois, uh, for Illinois, yeast and mold allow uh, you're allowed up to 1,000 CFUG, um, but in Michigan, uh, for adult use cannabis, you, you just to compare to another you know state industry, you're allowed up to 100,000 CFUG and up to 10,000 CFUG for medical cannabis. So the five samples that you had, um, of the five samples you had, as you pointed out four could have been sold for adult use in Michigan and two would have been good enough for medical use. It's just kind of interesting to, to point. I thought that was an interesting note to point out while, while they did fail Illinois standards by for all intents and purposes, if, if this were to be a product tested in Michigan, it would still be on the shelves. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. And that was one thing that I kind of, um, that, you know, and that's a theme and, and I'm sure Tom has more to share about that, but just this whole kind of weird patchwork of different regulations in different states. I imagined somebody driving in a car on a cross-country road trip, driving through a bunch of states and stopping and visiting and touring different states, right? Depending on what state you were in, you could walk into a dispensary and buy weed that was subject to 
either very much looser or stricter regulations, depending on where you were. And that was one thing that really jumped out at us. I mean, Michigan's practically our neighbor. They could have a hundred times the amount of mold, mold and yeast, uh, than is allowed in Illinois for adult use recreational. And that, that, you know, that's something that I think the industry has to grapple with as, as time goes on. Like, where do you set a limit? What limit makes sense, really? I don't know. Tom, what do you think? Yeah, I think this is something that advocates uh, really hammer on this strange um, patchwork that changes by state by state. And and not only that, it's, it seems to be constantly changing in each state, you know, like some places curtail and, and draw back and or cut out completely uh, testing for certain things. So what it's left us with is no real standard for um, for gauging the safety of, of this, you know, very lucrative uh product that's becoming more and more available across the country. And there's different perspectives on how to kind of view this. And, and one of them that was relayed by an expert in our story was that you kind of let these state by state experiments play out, right? And you kind of let each state uh, decide their own standards. And then, you know, after a certain point of time, then perhaps, uh, you know, real uh, set, you know, appropriate limits will become clear and then those can be adapted kind of uh, nationwide. So you, there is some disagreement on kind of how to, uh, you know, approach this. And uh, you do, like I said, you have these people saying, oh, well, we need, this is a reason why we need kind of uh, you know, nationwide decriminalization uh, so that we can kind of put this under the purview of, of federal agencies and have them set standards like they do for other consumer products. But then you have other people, like I said, saying, well, no, maybe this is the best way to figure out what the standards standard should be rather than maybe having uh, federal agencies come to potentially arbitrary limits. So, yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's fascinating and interesting, definitely. Yeah. And I think one of the things that was interesting that you pointed out um, that, that has been uh, maybe not alleged strongly in Illinois, but in other states, um, some cultivators are able to shop around uh, for their for their laboratories, um, which is just interesting. Um, the idea that you can that you can choose your laboratory when it because to me, when you hear independently tested you know, cannabis, like this test, this testing label and this test was performed by an independent lab. Um, you think of that as like maybe something the cultivator didn't have a choice in making. Um, and so th that's just an interesting um, thing. I think you pointed out in the article and another thing in that, in that regard is that um, a lot of the labs that, that are functioning at a professional level and, and working even with the DEA um, hesitate to, to get involved because of the worries of, of losing that federal funding, uh, for example. So, you right. know, that's a really good point, Cole. Sorry to jump in, but um, that was that was something. And to piggyback off of what Tom just said about the patchwork and the, you know, whether eventually this will become legal at, on a national level, um, th there is a lot of expertise I think that that is missing because it's still 
uh, you know, a prohibited substance uh, federally, you know, you don't have maybe the academic minds on this because um, universities that get federal money are hesitant, hesitating to get in on this. And like you mentioned, the labs that have DEA contracts, they don't want to jeopardize that revenue by taking on testing for private cannabis industry. So it's really kind of a shame because I feel like we're missing out on a lot of expertise because there is still this federal sort of cloud over it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's and, uh, it's like a weird catch-22. Go ahead, Tom. You were mentioning lab shopping, which is kind of this um, shadowy process that uh, there's a lot of whispering about in the cannabis industry, and there have been some uh, kind of firm allegations around. But, you know, the idea is that, you know, a, a cannabis producer will find uh, a lab that may be... Uh, willing to fudge numbers or uh, give results that they think uh, are, are the most attractive to them, you know, in terms of that obviously the big uh, granddaddy of them all is, is, is the level of THC found in pot products. So yeah, you know, this is something that, like you said, we haven't, we haven't been embroiled by any lab shop, real lab shopping scandal in the state of Illinois, but um, there definitely is um, whispers about this and, and, and claims that have been made about this happening. Um, and so it's uh, something that we were certainly aware of and wanted to point out in, in, the, in this context because uh, just because of, you know, how weirdly regulated all of this stuff is, you know, uh, this seems to be uh, somewhat commonplace in, in, in some states. You know, another thing that's interesting is that in the process of, of reporting this story, we kept talking to the state officials and we kept asking them about, you know, who's testing the testers, right? Who's watching the labs uh, because of this? And, and, and like Tom said, there haven't been any concrete findings of lab shopping in Illinois. There's been whispers, but, um, but there ha it has happened in other states, right? It's been proven there have been at the labs that have faced sanctions because of, of that kind of activity. Right. So we kept asking the regulators here, like, who's testing the testers? Who's watching the labs? And, and, and do you have any uh, way to yourself independently confirm the findings of labs in Illinois? And they kept saying, no, 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 we're not really set up to do that. And after months and months, I mean, gosh, Tom, was it like actually about a year <laughs> of reporting altogether? Finally, at the end, the Department of Agriculture said that they are now going to build out their own state lab. And so the Department of Agriculture will have a facility eventually, we don't know when it's going to come online, but they will be able to backstop and double check uh, the results if they need to, if something looks funny. So that's kind of an interesting innovation here in Illinois. Yeah. And, and a huge step because, you know, how this process works right now is you have a, a private, in a lot of cases, you know, corporation working with a private lab. And then the results of this process are just reported to the state. So, you know, like Stephanie said, there isn't really a process of testing the testers at this point, or, you know, one of the ideas that we heard was kind of, you know, you take a sample 
and you 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 send it around to all the labs and see what the different results are from the same sample uh, to kind of get a baseline. Um, and, and we just don't have that right now. And so what, what it is, is it's left in the hands of, uh, you know, the accountability of these companies and labs to uh, be above board and to meet the regulations that are you know, put forth by the state. Yeah. And oh, Stephanie, were you about to jump in? No, no. I, I mean, I just had one other sort of thought on all of that. It's important sure. to note for your listeners that, you know, in all of our reporting, we never we never felt like um, you could compare the weed you buy in a dispensary with something you would buy on the illicit market, like, you know, weed just you get from your dealer or whatever. Um, the But the, the thing, I always come back to money, right? Because I'm a consumer reporter. I feel like when you're paying the high prices and you're paying the high taxes, if they tell you it's clean, it should be clean. So that's my little thing that I just want to throw in. Yeah. And on that note, you know, that's a great, what you just said and what Tom said about, uh, he kind of said what you said as well, watching the watchers or, or who's testing the testers. Um, and, and like you mentioned, the the Department of Ag setting up a lab. Um, I fingers crossed that you know it works out. But I wanted to to transition maybe to the topic of transparency because you kind of both just brought it up. Um, you know, some people who oppose the legalization of cannabis have actually used examples that were listed in your article um, as arguments against it, and we don't have to go into that. But I actually think it, so. Like for example, in June. Arizona officials announced a voluntary dispensary recall. Last winter, Canada recalled 330,000 packages of cannabis gummies. In February, the state of Nevada, you know, all these recalls, they're listing like, oh, I thought I thought the goal of legalizing cannabis was to make it safe. Just to take those, on. I'm not asking, you know, for you guys to weigh in, but to take those comments on, I feel like recalls are examples of the regulated market working. You would expect there to be recalls. Now to segue to something you guys can comment about, because I try to avoid asking you guys, you know, your opinion as reporters. Um, you have reported that, uh, you know, we've seen this moldy weed, but there's not been any consumer alerts or recalls. And in fact, the law seems to be structured in a way that, that protects and uh, makes it really hard to find information out about potential recalls. Can you tell us more about that? Um, well, we did, um, you know, through our reporting, we did learn about kind of this quiet um, recall process that centered on uh, a strain of cannabis that was grown by Verano at the Ataraxia facility that's called Maglandrace, which is, you know, from kind of going through your uh, community's uh, Reddit forum, it was apparently a, a pretty popular strain um, among medical patients and recreational consumers. And, you know, but what seemed to happen was at a certain point, all of these reports started to come out that, hey, this kind of tastes a little funky. This kind of tastes a little moldy. And it seems like at some point, some of those reports, you know, made it up the ladder. And there was uh, a letter that was sent to dispensaries by state officials that that said you know quarantine you know the maglandrase product from these specific flower lots um you know and hold them and if you want to you can alert your customers um you know about what's happening um if not we're investigating 
you know, and we're going to look into this. So, you know, that was kind of this weird example where, you know, th there seemed to be an issue with transparency. And, you know, I think what you what you're saying is is exactly what regulators would say is a recall is not an example that, you know, this these products are unsafe, you know, you know, writ large, it's that the system is working and that we're back checking things and that we're making sure that complaints are heard and that if there is something that's potentially dangerous, it's taken off the shelves. But in this case, um, it was largely kept quiet um, aside from, you know, one major company um, alerting its customer, so customers and allowing them to get basically uh, refunds or store credits for it. So, yeah. Um, I'm certainly curious whether there have been um, more of these that maybe we weren't able to dig up and, and get information on that was firm. But um, yeah, I think that the idea of a recall, though, is thanks, is um, is is so interesting, you know, in in the, in the context of cannabis right now because it's it it draws these splashy headlines. We saw what happened in Michigan. Um, this kind of brought the cannabis industry to a certain extent to a halt. I went to a dispenser in Michigan on Black Friday because my dad was like, they got great weed deals at the, my dispensary. So I went over there to check it out. And when I get there, I, I'm like, wow, the shelves are kind of bare. And I asked the, the clerk and I'm like, what's the deal? Why is the supply so limited? She said, it's the recall. They've taken so much product. So these recalls can potentially have a real serious impact. But what what the point is, I think, is to, to make sure that, uh, you know, the, the, these programs are living up to the standards that they've set. But um, in the case of what happened in Illinois, uh, it, it was a little suspicious that this wasn't made public from the start and that, uh, you know, it was again, left up to mostly major corporations to decide how they wanted to handle and mitigate this. Yeah. 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 I, I thought that I was agree. the craziest thing. Go ahead, Stephanie. Sorry. Uh, I didn't. I was just going to say, you know, I was, um, I was, and again, I, you know, I approach, I approach everything I do as a consumer reporter. So I'm always thinking about people who spend their hard earned money on something and, I was really disappointed with the lack of transparency in that recall that that uh, the Mag Landrace one that um, Tom referenced. You know, here the they they know there's a problem. Clearly, there's a problem with mold in 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 several batches, and and instead of the state doing something to inform the public, they basically leave it on the shoulders of the dispensaries to do it. And the other thing that's really bizarre about the regulation in Illinois, there's not like one cannabis authority, there's different places that have a different piece of the puzzle. So you've got the Department of Agriculture that's overseeing the cultivators. You have the Department of Business and Professional Regulation that's overseeing the dispensaries. You also have the Department of Public Health that has some input on medical stuff or whatnot. But the, um, you know, so they put it on the backs of the dispensaries to either inform their customers or not. And there, I'm sure were plenty of people that spent their hard-earned money on this product. It was moldy and nobody ever told them about it. And, and, and to your point about, um, about recalls in general, I mean, I don't think that opponents of cannabis in general should use recalls 
as as a reason to say that it's bad because we get recalls all the time in food products like think about the big or even auto, automobiles <laughs> or automobiles i mean as a consumer reporter i write about baby products car seats um those baby sleeper things i write about romaine lettuce and uh, you know other different different products that over the years have had huge nationwide recalls right we all are informed about that and i just think transparency you know sunlight is always the best best disinfectant in so many ways and and the other thing about the lack of transparency is that illinois law allows them to take certain actions against bad actors in secret, like they could, if there's a cultivator that has a pattern of doing something wrong, either not logging their um, product properly or, you know, some, somehow losing track of things or just being lax, the state can take action against them and do it privately through an administrative action that is never made public. And I just think that the industry to, to have the confidence of consumers and and be this great, wonderful, thriving industry. Transparency is the key. I think you don't want to let your customer base down by having so much um, opaque stuff going on. That's my little rant. Yeah, I love it. I think that brings up an important point, which is that there is a lot of these privacy provisions that are embedded into the legalization law, and. In fact, a lot of them are very protectionist, right, of, of, of the industry. And so, you know, who, who actually uh, owns these companies? How much money each dispensary is being made? All of these things are, uh, are, 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 are a benefit to, to cannabis companies. And it, uh, it's not transparent. And what, what's happening on this side of things with enforcement uh, completely uh, falls in line with that. So it's part of a, of a larger trend of how, you know, we've legalized this, this new thing that is generating a ton of money for the state, yet um, the state hasn't ensured that, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the sale of it and what's happening behind the scenes is, is transparent and can be known by the public. Yeah. And Stephanie, I got a question for you on, on the note of uh, like consumer, consumer choice, you know, standards and such. Um, in your article, you included a really important detail. Sorry, I'm fishing through all the articles right now. Um, once again, folks, we'll have them in the show notes. In the article, you mentioned something that I like to talk about all the time, which is that a product that fails testing um, can actually be remediated and, and resubmitted as a, a concentrate and infused product. And the keyword here is that the concentrate has to pay, pass testing to folks. Don't get scared. Um, but but I, on the note of like just being, you know, transparent and open with consumers and looking at the way that other industries function, do you think there should be more um, transparency regarding the use of remediation technology um, in cannabis? You know, that is a really interesting question uh, because I learned a lot about the remediation stuff just reporting this. Uh, and, and just for listeners that don't know, if there's a flower sample, a batch of flower that gets tested at a lab and fails um, one of the state tests, it 
it, depending on what it failed, right? So if it fails yeast and mold, that's usually what it's failing. Yeah. It can be it can be made into something else. It can't be resold as flour. It's it's done. It gets one strike and it's out. But it can um, it can be changed into something else. It could be uh, they basically uh, process it using solvents and they make it into you know maybe it ends up being a vape cartridge or something like that. And it's totally safe and it needs because it needs to be retested and pass all tests. If it fails again, and, and these processed products are usually failing for too much leftover solvent that's used in the process, it still is in there. It can be actually um, remediated again if it's in that state, and it can be cleaned up and, and sold and be perfectly fine and safe. Uh, one, of the, one of the lab guys that we interviewed in Michigan in Ann Arbor said it's a little bit like cooking a pizza in an oven. You put the pizza in and maybe like the first time you check it, the cheese is like a little too white and it's not really bubbling yet. Then you put it back in the oven and cook it a little bit longer and it's bubbly and brown and perfect the way you want it. So that's just part of the way they make those products. And it's, it's like you said, it's not like there's, it's bad or anything. It can be, it can continually be remediated if it's in that state. It's an interesting question about whether there should be something on the label that says something about the process that it underwent. I think that would be interesting. And again, I love transparency. It would be an interesting question about whether they should put on the label exactly how it was processed and how many times it was processed. That would be an interesting thing. I wonder if that would be a heavy lift or uh, too much of a request for the cannabis companies because they probably wouldn't want to necessarily put all that on the label. But it, it is very interesting. Maybe it could be something that, that could end up on a COA. Well, yeah. And to your point, um, you know, there so um, consumer choice mandates that irradiated food, for example, be adequate. I'm reading off the FDA's website, be adequately labeled and under the general labor labeling requirements, it's necessary that the food processor inform the consumer that food has been um, irradiated. Labeling of irradiated foods, however, is undergoing reevaluation in the U.S. Um, so, you know, I think FDA has some requirements for whole, whole foods that have been irradiated. So they require the label bear the radura symbol. Um, and the phrase treated with radiation or treated by irradiation. Now, to your point, um, so first of all, not everybody uses uh, irradiation as a form of remediation. Some people use ozone technology. Some people use other technologies that are almost like uh, Christmas magic. Um, but uh, because the word, to your point, because the words radiation and irradiation may have negative consequences, um, the labeling requirement has been viewed as an obstacle to consumer acceptance. And, and many in the food industry believe that an alternative wording such as electronically pasteurized might be helpful. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that, because I want to be clear, I, I bring up remediation on the show a lot. Um, you know, the FDA has, has done a pretty good write-up. If you guys want to read, I'll throw the link in the show notes, the overview of irradiation food and packaging. Um, for all intents and purposes, uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency, the WHO, Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, and other expert groups have uniformly concluded that food irradiation does not pre present any enhanced toxicological, microbiological, or nutritional hazard. So I want to be very clear that I'm not saying that there are any 
issues with the application of the technology, I've simply been trying to point out that there's a lack of transparency. If you look at Canadian companies, for example, because Canada does have a federal requirement, I say federal, whatever the hell it is over there, a nationwide requirement for certain foods. I believe it's potatoes, a few other things, and, and now cannabis is in that um, criteria from what I read, and, and they require that it, that it be labeled if irradiated. And so companies have made statements on it, but it just seems that there's a hesitancy uh, to, to even make a statement on it here. And of course, there's no regulations to be open about it. So sorry, I, I rambled, but I, I thought you'd like that part since your, your background in consumer um, project, products and stuff. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I did not realize that Canada requires it. Um, I, I think it's always fascinating to look at what other, you know, other industrialized nations do with consumer products, like uh, just kind of going down a slight tangent, but many of the um, chemicals in consumer products that we use, cosmetic products and sunscreens and things like that, there are way stricter regulations in the EU compared to the US for certain types of chemicals used in fragrances and things like that. So it's always interesting to see what other countries are doing. And that's very interesting that Canada is doing that. I, I wonder if that would ever come to the United States. I mean, if it did, I would imagine it would be someday like far over the horizon when this is all legal nationwide, coast to coast in the US. Um, cause it seems to me that that kind of getting that kind of transparency, it, it, it I mean, it, sometimes California is ahead of the curve. You could see maybe California requiring that kind of transparency. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder though, to get, to get that as a, an everyday occurrence, if that will, if that would be somewhere down the line, it's just hard for me to imagine some of these States willingly like requiring that to be on the label but it is an interesting thing and I, I you know I, like I said I'm always a big fan of transparency you know let the consumer have the information don't treat people like babies and let them have the information and they can figure out on their own whether or not you know that's something that they want yeah oh and I did a quick google it looks like I was wrong there's only certain cases in which the foods in, in Canada and cannabis have to be uh, labeled. So I wanted to do your own research, folks. I am not an expert on everything, but I wanted to throw that out there. Uh, and, and really the reason I bring it up there as we uh, start to wrap up the show, you know, you mentioned not only the um, the state of Illinois opening a lab, but also in your article, you mentioned that Verano is creating a new in-house lab to help spot and prevent problems with quality control. And so the topic of remediation comes up because we've heard that... <laughs> most cannabis companies just choose to remediate before testing because of the fact that Illinois standards are so strict. Um, when you have talked to Colt, did you like my, my question is, did, did you sense a preponderance of this technology? Did you sense like it was like a must or like part of their protocol? Cause that's kind of the sense that a lot of people get. And I didn't know if through your investigation, you, you picked up on that or if it was just kind of an aside comment. I think Tom talked to a couple of folks who do do that, but Tom, go ahead. Yeah, I think remediation technology is getting, is increasingly common, you know, um, yeah. and it's something that people are leaning on. Um, I, I think it's just, uh, you know, you, you're, you're, 
uh, so many of these companies have um, really uh, kind of, I think, are just trying to maximize the profits. Like they have Absolutely. shareholders, you know, Verano has shareholders, uh, Cresco has shareholders. Um, so making sure you aren't losing batches, you know, which depending on the size could, could be worth tons of money um, to an average person. So yeah, I think leaning on these new technologies for remediation is, is more and more common, but the, the, the one thing is the technologies are changing so rapidly, you know, yeah. more, more and more people are getting into this field and coming out with different remediation techniques and technologies. So I think it's kind of a, a developing aspect of the industry, but definitely something that uh, I think the, the big, the big dogs are, are keeping a close eye on and, and beginning to rely on. Cool. Few, a few last questions and uh, point points that I wanted to kind of bring up, and then I want to make sure I give you the floor for anything you feel maybe we haven't mentioned, and then we can start to wrap up the show if that sounds good. Um, so uh, you had gotten a statement from state regulators, and they said that the Sun-Times tests show that legal weed is safer than what's on the street. They said the product tested showed no evidence of heavy metals, E. coli, salmonella, or detectable mycotoxins or pesticide res- residue all common in the illicit market. Did they have any data that they were able to provide to you to back up that statement? No. I didn't no, figure because product in the black the illicit market, no. <laughs> gotcha. That's the thing. I mean, I figure, uh, you know, products in the illicit market aren't often tested. So no. maybe that's they're the no, point they were not. trying to make, but it just seems to, weird to make that definitive statement without data to back it up, you know? Yeah, I don't know if this was a, you know, a, allusion to uh you know the the vape gate sure uh, vaporizer cartridges that um, yeah. sorry to bother you I'm this on, guy i'm on a call right here does he have his own desk okay um <laughs> the, the, sorry i'm in the it's all good um it's all good. yeah they uh so what I was saying was, I, I don't know, they mentioned heavy metals. I'm assuming this is, you know, alluding to the vape gate stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I think most product is uh, on the black market is manufactured, uh, transported, sold, uh, and consumed without any interdiction by uh, authorities who would have the opportunity to test it. And even if it is taken off the street, you know, if a police officer in ALSIP gets a fines five ounces of weed i don't think they're taking that to the lab and testing it i think they're just tagging it putting it in an evidence container so um no they did not uh give us any uh you know data or test results or anything to back up you know what their what their what their claim is that this you know uh affirms that their the products that are being sold legally are safer than the illegal products but i think uh you know (laughs) the assumption uh, is that product or, you know, the reality is the products on the black market aren't tested and, uh, aren't, uh, subject to any regulation. So yeah, whether the issue with mold, you know, the thing that we identified and, and, uh, and found mold from what I understand is, is found commonly in, in marijuana. That's, uh, you know, a little, uh, a little, moister a little wetter you know and 
I think a big complaint among legal cannabis buyers in Illinois is that the marijuana is dry when they buy it off the shelves, right? It's overly dry. It feels old. And I, th I think that uh, having weed dry out is a tactic to, um, you know, allow to kill some of that mold. So, uh, you know, if you're getting weed on the black market and it's really, you know, quote unquote, dank, as they say, um, <laughs> You know, you may, you may uh, be exposing yourself to mold just uh, by the fact of, you know, how what what part of the process the cannabis is in. But that that wasn't something we were able to do. I, it, would, it was something that we would have loved to do to go and find some illegal weed and to test it. But, uh, you know, there's a. Uh, our bosses would kill us. Yeah, <laughs> we, can't, we can't be breaking the law to, to report the news, unfortunately. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Hey, um, so two two more questions. And admittedly, the first one is for, you know, for both of you, but it came up in spirit from a, a comment that Stephanie made. And then the last one is is more geared towards Stephanie, but feel free still to to weigh in, Tom. Um, Stephanie, earlier you mentioned, uh, and I admittedly, these could be construed as opinion, you know, but I'm just maybe even asking you guys as uh, experts, I guess, in this in this field. You mentioned that regulations for cannabis are split amongst many agencies. I would say too many agencies. So you listed off IDPH, IDFPR, the Illinois Department of Agriculture, um, and I might even be missing one or two. Um, you know, other states like Michigan, for example, have the MRA, the Michigan or the Marijuana Regulatory Agency. I think that's what it stands for. It's a central body that is able to make um, some decisions. Do you think, again, I realize this is kind of an opinion question, but do you think Illinois would benefit from a central uh, body? I know it would probably make your, your guys' job easier if you had one person to go to. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. As reporters, we'd only have one place to bug. Um, you know, I, I mean, it's not for me to say, um, but you, you do have to kind of wonder when it's so decentralized. Um, like, for example, when that Maglandres thing happened that Tom uncovered and he found it by looking at the Reddit thread from your listeners. Um, the the Maglandres quarantine thing was actually officially undertaken by the Department of Business and Financial Regulation, uh, which oversees the dispensaries. But it's weed that's coming from a cultivator, right, Verano, which is overseen by the Department of Agriculture. And we have to imagine that there were probably phone calls back and forth between the people from these agencies. But wouldn't it be a lot simpler if it were all one, uh, one umbrella or whatever, one, one regulator doing all of it, right? Because some of the stuff spills over from cultivator to dispensary. And right now we have this weird kind of decentralized system. It just, it, it's, and, and, and you also kind of wonder if it were like one cannabis regu regulatory authority, you might be able to assemble like the people with the most expertise in just cannabis in one place, as opposed to people who are required to be experts in many different things. If they work for the, you know, overseeing all of Illinois agriculture, right? You got to know about soybeans and everything else. And then, um, and then the department of finance, business and profession, I always say that wrong financial and business, whatever, D IDFPR, uh, the, those folks oversee all kinds of professions that are regulated in Illinois, everybody from dental hygienists to, you know, 
um, a, a million other people, locksmiths or whatever they regulate, right? So it, it, it just, it's not for me to say, but just sort of intuitively, you wonder if it, if it might make more sense to just put, put it all in one place. It's such a big industry. There's so much going on and it's a lot, it's a lot. And it seems like if you had one place, it would make more sense. I don't know, what do you think, Tom? Yeah, I mean, as a cannabis reporter even, the greatest example of this, I think, is so, yeah, you mentioned like you have Department of Financial and Professional Regulation dispensaries, Department of Ag, which does uh, cultivation centers, and then you have uh, the Department of Public Health, which has been involved with the medical program and oversaw that prior to recreational, um, all involved. And then, you know, you have all the other agencies that are involved with the, the revenue side of it. And then you have, uh, like, Toy Hutchinson was named as Pritzker's uh, key advisor on cannabis, right? And when she was named, she was referred to as the cannabis czar. And then it was like, oh, well, no, she's not the cannabis czar. And then they named Danielle Perry the cannabis regulation oversight officer. And then they started calling her the cannabis czar. And they were serving at the same time. And I was like, well, where's the head of the beast on this thing? You know, like, where does everything run down from? And even as a cannabis reporter, that's hard to parse through. Obviously, Toy has left or is leaving. I'm not sure where she's at right now, but she's going to the Marijuana Policy Project, which was a, you know, is a key lobbying firm that helped write the legalization law in Illinois. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird kind of system where there's all of these different pieces and to get the full picture of certain things, like we had to, for this story, we had to reach out to all of these different agencies and kind of pull together different things. And uh, I think it, it would make sense to have some sort of unified office uh, or agency created within the state government that can kind of pool all of this stuff together and all these resources together uh, to make sure that there's coordination and, and oversight that's done in a kind of uniform manner. Yeah, it'd probably make your job a little bit easier, uh, like I said, too. <laughs> so, it, it um, yeah, so, okay, well, uh, last question, um, and it, it, again, it's sorry if it seems like I'm asking for your opinion, but Stephanie, you know, you just mentioned looking at, at many other uh, industries, like involving consumer packaged goods, um, you know, if I just think it's interesting, THC percentage, is, which is something you mentioned in your um, uh article you you kind of talk about potency testing and generally speaking potency is thought of uh the level of thc which for our listeners our listeners know that that paradigm is slowly but surely changing but as of now thc levels are kind of what people sell cannabis off of and and everything else it really is what drives the industry i mean for example uh, brownie scout which is a strain by i think gti uh, tested out with 35% uh, THC apparently, and it made headlines in, in high times, right? Um, so I guess my question is, it's interesting how we have our taxing, our tax scale set up, right? Anything exceeding like I think 30 or 35% THC is subject to a higher tax rate. And the reason I think that's especially strange is because typically speaking, um, like concentrates, for example, or vape pens are seen as healthier options because you're not smoking, right? I'm not saying any of it's healthy, uh, but generally speaking, we agree that, or it seems like the um, 
the notion rather is that vaping is more healthy. And so I don't know, I should, I'm comparing it to like soda, for example, in Illinois, soda is subject to higher taxes because it's less healthy. So it's interesting that the healthier options in Illinois cannabis are taxed higher, arguably. Have you ever thought about it that way? Hmm. You know, that's an interesting thought. I, I, well, first of all, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that vaping is healthy. So no, no. Yeah. I, I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to be getting, very clear. Cause I've, right. somebody said that to me, they're like, so, or no, I think we were talking, yeah, with smart approaches to marijuana. And they were saying like, people say that cannabis is healthier than, than alcohol or whatever. And I was like, you know, comparing that's kind of hard to do, but I think at a bare minimum, anybody that's rational agrees that, you know, probably smoking or inhaling an aerosol is just by sheer nature, not healthy. Right. Um, but, but comparatively speaking, it's the notion seems to be that vaping's a bit healthier. Right. So. Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, it, it is, I, I get what you're saying. It, it is, it is, I think people have viewed uh, Illinois and have given compliments to Illinois um, set up for doing that different higher tax rate on the THC levels that are 35% and up. I've only heard like positive things about that from just, you know, chatter. Tom could probably weigh in more from what he hears um, from industry folks. I think um, like what you were originally saying about how you try to educate your listeners about sort of the all of the components that go into making whatever product you're using enjoyable and having a high THC level is not necessarily like if you're more of a connoisseur, you're looking for, uh, you're looking more for like all of it, like the taste profile and just like all, all the different things that go into it. Right. And I, I almost view it like you know, when you're a teen, well, okay, so now I'm going to say that I did illegal things as a teenager, but when I grew up in Wisconsin and the drinking age was 18 then. And so pretty much every high school kid in Wisconsin would drink. And, um, you know, the, the dumb boys would go for high percentage alcohol because it would get you drunk faster. And that's like all they really knew. Now, those people are men in their 50s now, and I guarantee you that's not how they're buying their alcohol they're probably finding a nice bottle of merlot that they that they enjoy the taste profile of that particular wine it's like becoming more sophisticated in your taste and i think because cannabis is so new and there's so many brand new people it we're really at this like almost infantile phase where people just see a thc number they're like yeah that's what i want Whereas I think as time goes by and people, and thankfully because of podcasts like yours and, you know, places where people can come together as a community and exchange information, I think as time goes by, people will get more sophisticated and THC is not going to be like their number one driving thing. Um, I, Tom, maybe you have um, more information about what you've heard about Illinois' kind of bifurcated taxing system where they tax the um, higher THC at a higher level. I mean, I've only heard compliments like from consumer advocates, but I, I don't know, maybe you've heard other stuff from industry folks. Yeah, likewise. I've, I've heard the same sort of uh, that, that they think this is a better way of approaching it than some other states have uh, to, to set it by THC levels and increase the tax rates based on that. Um, but, you know, 
I think everything's kind of subject to change. Uh, you, you're also putting the state in a position where, uh, you know, the maybe products that people are buying less are being taxed more. So maybe they're going to want to change that to uh, make sure that they maximize the tax revenue that they're able to collect from cannabis. Uh, but I think what you said, Cole, earlier kind of hits the nail on the head that THC value being the, the you know biggest thing for people purchasing, I think is uh, beginning to fall by the wayside. People are becoming very strain conscious now. Um, that's a big thing. And um, I'm hoping that in stores in the state of Illinois, there will be more awareness and more uh, uh kind of advertising of, you know, there's always new strains, there's always crosses. So there's all these new names, you may not recognize them, but I think it would benefit uh, shops to show, oh, this strain is whatever, purple whoopsie doodle or whatever. And it's comes from <laughs> this and this. Um, so that people can know, oh, well, that has, uh, you know, sour diesel or an, another kind of old lineage strain. And I like that. So I'm going to buy that. People are be definitely becoming aware of that. People are also becoming aware of their terpenes. And um, as we wrote about, uh, you know, terpenes are included in uh, many COAs, uh, certificates of analysis. And so I think consumer awareness and consumer understanding of the products will increase. And I think there'll be continued kind of shift away from just like, what's the strongest weed there is to, well, what, weed agrees with me the most and uh perhaps when that shifts more then the approach to taxation will also kind of follow suit around that yeah well um on that note i think the only thing we we meant we didn't mention and i'll put this in the show notes as well you have a, a interactive database which people can search uh, for legal cannabis failures uh, you can see which cannabis products failed state mandated inspections so if you want to search through that database we'll have the link in the description and you know you mentioned purple whoopsie daisy i think my you know strain of purple whoopsie daisy is calling my name right now i think it's time to spark up some cannabis so on that note <laughs> i don't even know if that's a real strain tom but i love the name it's no, gonna be I, a I real just, strain yeah so feel free to take that any uh growers on here yeah, yeah, just Not put just royalties. Yeah, I was yeah, gonna man. say, give Tom royalties on the it's name, on please. <laughs> cool. Well, on that note, folks, uh, I've been sitting down with Tom Shuba and Stephanie Zimmerman from the Chicago Sun Times. Once again, the stories we've discussed um, are all in the show notes. We didn't uh, do a, a large discussion on the uh, understanding uh, legal weed labels, uh, but do check that out. It's a really short and simple article. And I believe our friend Margot Vaselli is even featured in that article. So it's a familiar name for you guys to read about. Uh, Tom, Stephanie, I want to thank you so much for setting aside time in your very busy schedule um, to, to sit down with me on the Chillinois podcast. Thank you so much. This was great. We, we really appreciate it. You do great work. Thanks so much, Cole. Yeah, <laughs> that means, that means a lot. Pleasure, Cole. And thanks. I mean, it just Cole was a huge uh, asset and resource for uh, actually doing this reporting and, um, you know, your network of, uh, of, of pot consumers is, uh, you know, very engaged and, 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 and very, uh, well-educated and helped us, uh, 
along this road. So it's much appreciated and we're glad to be here. Thank you. That means a lot coming from both of you. And uh, on that note, we'll make sure maybe in the future when it becomes more COVID safe, we can get, get together and uh, share uh, a joint of some purple whoopsie daisy. <laughs> <laughs> Sound good? Yeah. Cool. All right. Chillinoy, we'll see you next time. <laughs>